0: When you think about astronomy traditionally, you probably think about astronomers looking through a telescope at a single object and analyzing it as deeply as possible. Maybe you think about these great space telescopes we have or these automated telescopes we have that take pictures of the sky and astronomers get the data and analyze the objects inside. All of that is fine and that's traditionally how astronomy worked for a long time. But now we are taking high precision observations of so many objects at once that this older technique of doing everything by hand, of analyzing objects individually for their specific properties is no longer efficient. In a nutshell, we have too much data to involve a human at every step along the way. So how do we deal with that today? How can we leverage the technology that we have to help astronomers make the most of the data they've collected? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. One of the ways that astronomy has exploded in recent years is in the realm of big data with the advent of large sky or even all sky observatories that can image the universe to greater and greater precision, that can collect more and more objects, that can resolve images down to greater numbers of pixels and megapixels and even gigapixels now, we have a tremendous amount of data, more data than astronomers can ever hope to analyze by hand. We first approached this problem with citizen science where we basically recruited people to perform tasks over and over and over, but now we have to move even farther beyond that to techniques like machine learning that can analyze what individual astronomers cannot on their own and here to help us explore that i'm so pleased to welcome phd candidate and astronomer sankal gilda to the podcast sankal welcome to the show
1: Ethan, thank you very happy to be here
0: yeah it's it's very exciting to have you here so um i want to start by asking you a little bit about this data Problem that we have and it's not a problem it's like the dream of astronomers but if we were to take a look at what is the amount of data that we're collecting on galaxies for example 20 years ago 10 years ago versus today and what we're looking at in the future how is this field evolving in terms of the data we have how has that improved over time
1: that is an excellent question, um, and I really loved your introduction about um, uh, you know the big data, as you say, not a problem but the big data opportunity in astronomy. Um, this decade, um, you know, twenty twenty one to twenty thirty, is going to be phenomenal as far as big data in astronomy is concerned. It's because some of our largest telescopes, our most ambitious missions ever, are coming online. Uh, we have the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope. Um, we have JWST, which is due to be launched later this year. Uh, we have LSST, which comes online in, I wouldn't say 2023. Uh, and which is, which, which is going to record the entire southern sky once every three nights. I think it's every three nights or every two nights. Um, and which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, we're talking about terabytes of data every night. We've never seen anything like it. Um, to put things into context, uh, I believe SDSS, uh, the original missions, they, they observed only a few thousand galaxies um, total over their entire uh, mission period. Um, whereas uh, Gaia, which is another telescope that has given us um, astrometric data for hundreds of billions of stars, um, well, it has really taken um, measurements, the sheer quantity of measurements, Uh, to a whole different level. So uh, going forward, um, I think we are going to need to use tools that astronomers haven't traditionally used. And that is where machine learning comes in.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've really gone from this era of, you know, astronomers would make observing plans, right? You'd say like, okay, I want to look at this region of sky with this telescope that I have with this instrument equipped and you know it was phenomenal when we were able to get up to like one megapixel in terms of the number of pixels we can have on an image. And if we look today at what we're looking at, we have images that are gigapixels. We have images that are thousands of times as data rich. We have images that are much wider field at that same high resolution. And we have instruments that are automated, that are not just searching the sky for, you know oh, I'm gonna look here and catalog these objects, and I'm gonna look there and I'm gonna catalog these objects. We have, as you say, these much-of-the-sky or even all-sky surveys that are scanning the same regions over and over again, looking for transients, looking for brightenings and dimmings, looking for objects that appear or disappear for only short periods of time. And so we have all of this data coming in um, that we didn't have an inkling of 20 years ago. But now we have, you know, we've gone from the two-degree field survey to the Sloan Digital Sky Survey to Large Survey Synoptic Telescope, which is at the Vera Rubin Observatory, like you said, which is coming online within the next two years. We have in space, we've gone from, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope, which is incredible, but for narrow field views, that's going to be superseded by, as you said, the Nancy Grace Roman Observatory. And that's that's a wide field observatory that's going to have the same depth as Hubble, but more than 100 times the field of view. So we're going to be getting hundreds of times the amount of Hubble data in the same amount of time at the same depth. So like you said, we're really not just increasing the amount of data because we're making more observations over time, we're literally getting hundreds or even thousands of times the amount of data all at once. So that means What you were before measuring for a handful of galaxies, now you have thousands. What you were measuring earlier for thousands or tens of thousands of galaxies, now you're talking millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. You're talking about enormous numbers of data. So, like you say, this really brings up the opportunity for machine learning. And I know what you've specialized in recently is you've been looking at something that astronomers call the spectral energy distribution of the galaxy. So I can imagine, if I like, I can imagine the whole wavelength of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? On the highest end you've got gamma rays and then X-rays, ultraviolet, and finally you come down to visible light, which we're familiar with, but then you can go even further to infrared, microwave, and radio waves. That whole energy spectrum is out there. When astronomers talk about the spectral energy distribution of a galaxy, what exactly are they looking at and what information does that give us about the galaxy that we talk about spectral energy distribution for?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Also a great overview of the field and where it's going. Um, Specifically to answer your question, um, SEDs or spectral energy distributions, uh, they really are, um, on, if, you, if you imagine a, a Cartesian grid, on y-axis you have the flux, or as astronomers like to use, magnitude of a given galaxy. And on x-axis you have the wavelength. So you essentially plot the light that you collect from a galaxy as a function of wavelength. And this tells us extremely intrinsic quantities, properties of a galaxy. Um, because different types of galaxies, say heavier galaxies, will have a different energy distribution or light distribution, which is basically what an SED is, than a uh, less massive galaxy. A hotter galaxy will have a different distribution than a cooler galaxy. A dust rich galaxy will have a different distribution of light than a dust poor galaxy. And SEDs really are the first step in an entire science discovery pipeline. Um, We collect SEDs, um, or pardon me, we collect light in these different wavelength wavelength bands using what what are called filters. And then we use complicated, um, sophisticated uh, models, uh, which are typically Bayesian fitting codes to figure out the, uh, to relate Uh, this particular distribution of light that we've collected to the intrinsic characteristics of the galaxy. And we make our best estimates, um, and uh, that is the very first step. And you you can derive a lot of science downstream. You can say, hey, in this region of space, I see a lot of massive galaxies, or in this region of space, I see a lot of older galaxies. You can, just using simple correlations even, um, you can actually derive um, beautiful scientific results.
0: You know, and that's that's extremely interesting to me because one of the things I've been extremely interested in in my career is uh, sort of the formation and evolution of structure in the universe, of this large-scale structure. Uh, how and where and when are galaxies born and what are their stellar populations and how do those populations evolve and how does that evolution impact the chances for life or the large-scale structure um, where does that matter? Uh, Things are different inside a rich cluster versus in a small galaxy group like our own versus in a field galaxy, in an isolated galaxy that doesn't really have very much around it. Um, I liked what you said about some of the different things you can learn from the spectral energy distribution because you talked, for instance, about the temperature of the gas in a galaxy and I know that's something we learn from looking at the x-ray spectral energy distribution whether you have Uh, high energy or low energy x-rays what we call hard or soft x-rays that tells you something about the temperature of the gas in there Um, when we look at the visible light and the ultraviolet and the near-infrared what we generally call the optical part of the spectrum uh, you can see oh are there a lot of young hot blue stars in there indicating a young stellar population or are the stars in there mostly older and redder um, which indicates an older stellar population uh, the infrared is going to tell you a lot about the dust that's present there, including its temperature and its potential for forming new stars. And you're going to learn additional things in the radio as well. What I what I would like you to explain a little bit is, you know, I know you talked about okay, we're going to use a Bayesian fitting procedure, um, and that's both general and a little bit non-specific. What I maybe like to think about is there are only a few galaxies out there, relative to all the galaxies out there, there are only a few, only a small percentage of them actually have these really good multi-wavelength observations across the full set of electromagnetic wavelengths. We have very few galaxies, you know, compared to how many galaxies we actually have, uh, where we know, okay, here's what it looks like in the X-ray, here's what it looks like in the optical, here's what it looks like in the infrared, here's what it looks like in the far infrared, the microwave, the radio, and maybe even in gamma rays. Um, for the galaxies that we do have that for, where we do have that, you know, wide variety of spectral energy distribution, is that sort of where we start? Is that sort of where we say, okay, here's what's going on in these well-studied galaxies, and now what we're going to do is we're going to make templates for what do these galaxies look like? And then based on the parts of the spectral energy distribution that we do observe for the other galaxies, do we sort of do a weighted fit of, OK, it's you know maybe this percent likely to be like this galaxy and that percent likely to be like that other galaxy. Um, And this is extremely important, you know, not to say, okay, I'm going to look at this galaxy and I know what it is, but is this something that really behaves as a useful tool when we start looking at enormous numbers of galaxies and we start saying, okay, we're going to calculate how likely it is that a galaxy is like this for a large number of galaxies. And so we start seeing larger scale correlations. How, how does this work?
1: You've nailed it, Ethan. That is that is precisely it. that is um, the very first step, is to collect these broad SEDs from um, close by galaxies where we can get really high, as in our high quality SEDs uh, across uh, a very large swath of the um, uh, wavelength space. Uh, there is one more step before comparing these SEDs uh, to say. SEDs in limited bands. Uh, for other galaxies, what we do is we use these uh, well observed SEDs, and then we use them as templates to create computer simulations here um, on Earth. Uh, this is because we would like a a significantly larger um, sample, uh, or what we in the um, ML literature called training set. We would sign. We would like a significantly larger corpus uh, which to use uh, to then compare to, say, a galaxy that is far away and for which we have observations in only certain parts of the wavelength space. Uh, And then we use some metric to to compare the SED that we have observed to the entire corpus of SEDs that we have generated here on Earth. Um, Earlier, I mentioned Bayesian fitting. So Bayesian fitting really is a type of matching tool. Um, It really boils down to how do you compare an observed SED to a synthetically generated SED? Um, And the answer to that how is uh, in modern times, uh, Bayesian fitting. Um, What I've answered in my work that uh, I would love to discuss with you is uh, how machine learning is a better, faster, cheaper answer to that how. How it's a much more robust metric to compare an observed SED to simulated SEDs and get you much more confident results of your Galaxy properties.
0: No, I, I really want to thank you for that, and we can we can dive right into this because um, what I sort of described uh, before before you gave this wonderful introduction to the the process of machine learning is is how you would do it in the absence of machine learning, right? That you would say, oh yeah, we're gonna take these things we observe, we're gonna use those as the templates, and then we're gonna fit it based on you know, okay, this one matches this, that's fine. There are two parts to what you said that I want to go into the details of. One of them is the Bayesian fitting part. And I think of Bayesian fitting as, let's say I go out and I observe a distant galaxy only in the optical part of the spectrum. And I can say, okay, I see this much ultraviolet light, I see this much blue light, this much green, yellow, orange, red, maybe near-infrared. So I have, at these different wavelengths, a different amount of flux, a different amount of light that I see coming from the galaxy. What I don't want to do is I don't want to say, oh, this looks the most like this type of object that I've seen, and so it's probably that. That's extremely risky, because what there could be is there could be maybe... A thousand and one galaxies that are close to this. And one of those galaxies is an oddball, but it matches what I see really well. And the other thousand galaxies are very different than the oddball galaxy, but they're very common. And they are mostly, you know, there are way, way more of them. There's a thousand times as many of them as there are of the oddball rarity if I just took the best fit, I might say, and this galaxy is probably an oddball also, but if I do Bayesian fitting, I'm way more likely to say, you know, it's probably like the common things that it looks like rather than the rare thing that it looks like. And I feel like that's a clear example of what you get with Bayesian fitting that you would lose if you just went and picked the most likely thing.
1: That's that's precisely correct. Um, once again, you've given a very wonderful description of of why we use Bayesian fitting. We, we found and we know just from experience that humans can be um, very uh, poor uh, judges when it comes to comparing huge quantities of data So we want to take the judgment um, away from the human and in the hands of proven algorithms. Um, And the reason you describe is is a major reason why we do this. We want to take into account uncertainty. We want to take into account, hey, if the flux or light in this yellow area, in this yellow band, is this much? uh, How confident am I that my instruments have collected Precisely, say ten units of light. Uh, is it ten units plus or minus two units? Um, that's that's one part of it. The other part of it is when we go back and compare this observed SED to our corpus of SEDs. Uh, how confident are we about the light or flux distribution in various bands in various um, you know colors um, for for the galaxies in the corpus? how common is one galaxy compared to the rest, which is which is the uh, specific example that you picked. Uh, for reasons like this, uh, we have traditionally chosen to work in a Bayesian framework that allows us to robustly take into account uncertainty while comparing uh, one quantity with other quantities. In this example, that one quantity is observed, SED, and um, The other quantities are SEDs from our computer simulations.
0: That's great. And this this is really great. The Bayesian part, it sounds like what it gives you is it gives you a way to not just include, but to include quantified uncertainties and how that impacts your conclusion, and also quantified probabilities. How probable is it that this galaxy has this this particular SED versus that particular SED versus this third particular SED. And using the Bayesian approach allows you to not only do that, it allows you to quantify that, as you said, free of any human biases. But then you've got the second important new part of what you're doing, which is the machine learning part. Because you don't just have a library of the nearby galaxies with this well-observed spectral energy distribution. What you're basically doing is you are generating your own mock catalog, which is gonna have way, way more sources in it than we actually have directly observed spectral energy distributions, and that's going to result in better categorization of the types of galaxies that you are seeing, that you're applying these machine learning stats to, simply because you have a larger set of templates that you believe are going to be representative of the types of galaxies that are out there. Can you talk me through how you generate these mock catalogs and why they're so important to the process of machine learning
1: absolutely Uh, another fantastic question so in machine learning uh, we have a saying you can never have enough data Uh, machine learning algorithms are extremely data hungry Um, this is because essentially what they um, there are a number of machine learning algorithms Um, including um, neural networks, which falls into the category of deep learning. Um, I I mention neural networks because they're all the hype these days, and for good reason, but I digress. Um, So what machine learning algorithms really are uh, is they are pattern identifiers and pattern matchers. So if I have a large training corpus, uh, a large corpus of simulated galaxies and their SEDs, And again, I have their corresponding galaxy properties. um, And I know this because, you know, I've generated them on my computer. So I've controlled every aspect of the pipeline, so to speak. What I can do is I can train some algorithm. I can train a model to learn the high dimensional uh, pattern between the input, which which is the set of flux values and the output, which is the set of galaxy properties. I can say to my model, hey, I'm going to throw this large amount of data at you and I need you to figure out what the pattern between the input and output is so that once you've learned that pattern, if I give you a new galaxy for which um, which you haven't seen in the training set, you can then go ahead and tell me what the corresponding output should be. Um, and this is why we we've gen- we've worked uh, very hard to generate a large number of galaxies, um, simulate a large number of seds. Um, still not large enough. Uh, that's future work. I'm actually working on another paper right now. Um, but again, I digress.
0: Well, yeah, there's that that's something that I think is also worth emphasizing to people is um, I'm not here to tell you like, oh, so now, Instead of doing things the traditional way, we just are going to do it the way Sankalp is describing that he's done it. And no one is ever going to research this again because it's all done now. It's all solved. We know we'll just take mock catalogs, we'll throw it into his program. It'll identify the galaxies, and it'll give you a set of SED uh, fitting techniques and or a series of uh, a series of SEDs that correspond to galaxies. And then anytime we go observe a galaxy we'll run this algorithm we'll run the machine learning and we'll say oh we know that this galaxy has this set of properties and we're all done now and that's the end of astronomy we just we just do this i i don't think that's what's going to happen i think what you've done with your and this was a paper that i i saw was uh, submitted in january um of this year is what you've done is really um representative of a big step forward in understanding what these galaxies that we are observing and will be observing are doing as far as their spectral energy distribution goes. We're doing it in both a faster automated way rather than a manual way, which is a big advance. And we're also doing it, and this was, I thought, a remarkable result from your paper. We're doing it with superior success to what humans are doing.
1: Uh, that, that is correct. Uh, yeah, and I, and I wish astronomy uh, was this simple where, you know, one uh, one thirty page paper uh, solved everything, and uh, they just gave me my Nobel. But uh, that's not how things work. And you've made a very astute observation that this is really the very first step in a, in a number of steps we need to take to hopefully, ideally, get to a point where we have this beautiful model or this beautiful suite of models, and we can just input uh, our observed SED. And outcome great uh, results with associated uncertainties. Uh, we we are a little ways from that.
0: You know, but it's okay to be a little ways from that because um, what you're what you're basically saying is, look, um, you know, this is not the case of I I'm going to make all my dreams come true at once. This is a this is really the example of we get incremental progress. Sometimes we make big steps. Sometimes we make small steps. One of the things I liked about what you did is you took some of the world's most cutting-edge cosmological simulations where they said, okay, um, we are going to simulate the gas and the dust and the dark matter and how structure forms, and we're going to see where we expect galaxies to form and stars to form and to get these feedback, and we're going to evolve this throughout cosmic time to see what are the galaxies in this simulation that we wind up with today then you say okay we're going to take these mock galaxy catalogs and we're going to see um what what types of galaxies do these look like like each individual galaxy that we have what type of galaxy is it what are its properties what are the stars in there the gas the dust etc and you can make a mock catalog of an enormous number of galaxies with their spectral energy distribution and that um that seems like you know from what i know about machine learning that seems like an ideal training ground to say look we we have the galaxies we know we have the way that basically all of this physics works and astrophysics works and now we're going to Go back to the beginning, we're gonna put in all the physics we know, and we're gonna run these simulations that to the best of our knowledge, match the universe we get. Um, So these are excellent simulations. and then we say, okay, so now I have a much larger number. Like you said, uh, about you know how do we t- train these things that more is better? So now we have this enormous number of um, you know galaxies that we can use as part of our catalog to train the machine learning algorithm on. Um, So then we come to the actual galaxies and that's it. We take a look at the galaxy. We take a look at the light we've observed from it, whether that's optical, radio, infrared, whatever. um, And then we can infer the rest of the spectral energy distribution from the part we haven't observed using this machine learning technique. Uh, First off, is that accurate description of what you did? And second off... um, Why is it so much better to use these mock galaxy catalogs for this? Are you worried that in these simulations, they've made some assumptions that may be leading you astray?
1: Uh, Yeah, to answer your first question, that is an excellent summary of the process of generation of these galaxies. Uh, I, I mentioned we generate this corpus of galaxies and, and you beautifully described how we do that. What we really do is we try to simulate our observed universe in a box. We use our very powerful supercomputers and the intellect of hundreds and thousands of just brilliant researchers to, to generate these, create these state-of-the-art um, computer simulations. Uh, They're called hydrodynamical simulations. Uh, the, the biggest one that we use in our paper is called Illustris TNG. Uh, It's absolutely cutting edge. And uh, then we go and compare these simulations to various observations in the known universe. And we say, hey, close enough. And this is where we can improve. And this is where we are overshooting something. This is where we are undershooting. Um, Once we're satisfied to a reasonable degree, then we go ahead and uh, select certain galaxies. For our research, we selected galaxies that were generated only at Z, or redshift, of zero. Uh, And this was a very specific design choice on our part, because, um, and this ties into something we spoke just a little while ago, how this is only the first in a series of papers. So we wanted to take just the closest galaxies to us. Uh, A redshift zero galaxy is basically a galaxy right now. Uh, A redshift five galaxy is a galaxy that was, or that existed billions of years ago. Uh, So we took these closest galaxies uh, as our training set, as our corpus upon which to train our machine learning model. And then we just went on from there. Um, I think, I I hope I've answered part one. Um, Part two, um, are we worried that the the training set that we're using, uh, if they're not completely representative of reality? Absolutely, we're 100% worried about that. Um, At the end of the day, our predictions are only as good as the simulations of our galaxy, um, and which are only as good as these complex hydrodynamical simulations are, um, which really ties to how well do we understand the physics of galaxy formation? How well do we understand the physics of galaxy evolution? Um, There is certainly a long way to go there. In fact, um, for a current paper, which is a follow-up to the paper that uh, we've been talking about, um, what we're doing is we are using uh, this original training set of simply simulated galaxies uh, with observed galaxies, and we're saying, hey, this particular simulated galaxy looks very close to this observed galaxy. Let's say there is a degree of uncertainty uh, let's say we're completely off, but chances are we might be close regarding their uh, similar nature. How do I modify my simulated galaxy in its flood space to more closely resemble my observed galaxy? So we are we are essentially using reality as a guide to mold our simulations. And um, our hope is um, with the second paper, Uh, that we are able to produce more accurate uh, and more robust results so uh, i hear your concerns absolutely that was a big concern for us Um, and we are addressing it but nonetheless something that i would like to highlight is uh, even with that big stipulation that our results any results that we predict on real galaxies using mirkwood that's the name of our model um, are only as good as our simulations uh, even with that big stipulation, we found that our model uh, performs better than current state-of-the-art Bayesian fitting codes by orders of magnitude, both in um, accuracy, both in quality of um, predicted uncertainties, and in run times, especially run times. We were um, a couple of um, orders of magnitude faster. Um, typically, these Bayesian fitting codes they run on uh, supercomputers. Uh, whereas uh, Merkwood, uh, which is the model that I coded up, actually ran on my workstation that I'm using to communicate with you right now, uh, and it ran it 12 hours. Whereas uh, Bayesian fitting codes, they take uh, thousands and thousands of CPU hours to run.
0: Now that's that's very impressive because that's that's a clear metric in terms of computational time and power required, uh, where it's very obvious how superior the machine learning. Uh, version of this is over the traditional uh, computationally intensive Bayesian fitting uh, that doesn't leverage machine learning. But you also said this other part that I thought was fascinating, that your derived results were more accurate, that they were able to better account for uncertainties, and they were able to, um, you know, evaluate the relative importance of the different bands to reach particular predictions. Um, Why or how, or is this even something that you know, uh, do you evaluate um, what you use? Like, how do you know that this machine learning tool is better at classifying and determining properties of these galaxies than the traditional Bayesian fitting. Like, I know that there's this interplay of theory and observation, but it sounds like this interplay is actually a little trickier, that it's not just theory and observation, but simulations are are a big part of that as well. Um, can you sort of tell us how you evaluate this um, to know that the machine learning version is better than the traditional Bayesian fitting method?
1: Certainly, and that's a, that's a very important question to answer. Um, so just to recap, since these are computer simulated galaxies, which, which means we know their um, true properties, um, and just to quantify that a little bit, in, in with our paper, um, we used four galaxy properties. Um, the total stellar mass in a galaxy the total um, metallicity in a galaxy, the total dust mass in a galaxy, and the instantaneous star formation rate. Um, We used these four metrics, and since our training data is simulated, we know for each associated SED, for each galaxy, what what should be the true values for each of these four properties. Then what we did was, uh, we trained our machine learning model on a subset uh, of these um, galaxies, let's say we have 10,000 galaxies, we train our model on 9,000 of these and we use the, th- the remaining 1,000 to test uh, the predictions of our machine learning model. Uh, we do this in a repeated cyclical fashion and um, the term for this in the industry, in ML industry is cross-validation. So you have a training set and a held out set which the model has never seen. Uh, The purpose of doing this is to get objective results from the model so that it doesn't overfit. It doesn't actually learn the properties of these unseen galaxies, because that would be an unfair um, metric. That would be an unfair evaluation of its um, predictive capabilities. Uh, So in this particular example that I took uh, 10,000 galaxies and division into 9,000 and 1,000, we do this 10 times, which means we get predictions for these four properties for all 10,000 galaxies. Now this is our set one. We do the same process with our Bayesian fitting code. Uh, so with the Bayesian fitting, there really is no need for held out cross validation. Uh, what it does is it takes each observed um, galaxy. Uh, so imagine each one of these um, 10,000 simulated galaxies it takes them and it goes back to its corpus of simulations and it says hey which galaxy is this one particular galaxy closest to or which number of galaxies um, is this closest to and it gives you some sort of weighted mean of the original galaxies as the property of the one particular galaxy um, of interest Uh, we do that with the Bayesian fitting code and what we do then is we compare um, our predicted properties, both from the machine learning model and from the traditional Bayesian fitting code. Uh, FYI, I've been saying Bayesian fitting code, the term for the, the name for that model really is a uh, prospector. Uh, so we use prospector and we use Merkwood. We compare the properties to the ground truth properties using a number of metrics. And the specific metrics that we've used in this paper are mean squared error, mean absolute error, uh, mean bias error. These compare the predicted means to the ground truth properties. To recap, we've also predicted uncertainties. Uh, we went over this and, and um, we said that not only are we predicting um, that the mass of the galaxy, let's say, is 10 raised to 10 uh, solar masses. We're saying that the mass of a galaxy is 10 raised to 10 solar masses, plus minus 10 raised to one solar mass. So the three metrics that I used, that I mentioned earlier, they're really used to compare point predictions, but not probabilistic predictions. So we use something that's not really commonly used in the astronomy literature. We use two metrics called average calibration error and interval sharpness, which are able to account for um, the uncertainties that you predict. And they're able to tell you if the predicted error bars, if they're too large, or if they're too small, uh, if statistically they make sense. Uh, let's say if you're trying to predict uh, 95th percentile confidence interval, um, you would imagine that given uh, 1,000 predictions, about 950 of them should contain the ground truth value within the 95th, uh, the 95% confidence interval. We, we determine if that's true or not, if that's not true, uh, we, assign, we assign an error to it. And that metric is called average calibration error or ACE for short. We do, this, we do all of this for both predictions from Merkwood and predictions from Prospector. And uh, we presented this both uh, pictorially in, in terms of plots and in tables. Um, so the reader can very objectively compare uh, our results Results using traditional um, state-of-the-art, really, Bayesian fitting codes.
0: Yeah, and this is this is really interesting because it basically says, look, um, if I if I were working with real data, I can imagine um, that I have the local group, and if I wanted to say, okay, um, we're going to train our you know machine learning algorithm on all of the galaxies in the local group except we won't train it on the Large Magellanic Cloud. And then once we've looked at all the galaxies in the local group and we've got, you know, their spectral energy distributions and we've got the quantified uncertainties in there based on everything we know, now we're going to look at that one galaxy. Now we're going to look at the Large Magellanic Cloud and based on either a traditional Bayesian fitting algorithm with this data for all the other galaxies in the local group, or based on the machine learning data using your Mirkwood package, we're going to say, okay, and based on what we observe from the Large Magellanic Cloud, what can we say about its spectral properties? Um, What you're saying is, okay, first off, if you had included the Large Magellanic Cloud in your training data set, You'd basically be cheating. You'd basically be telling your program like, "Hey, look, you've got a hundred percent match for this because we we've measured it and it's the you know, we know all of its properties and it's a hundred percent match," um, which is what you called an example of overfitting right this is this is basically cheating you you're basically saying like oh like we've included the template for the exact thing that we're trying to measure so of course it matches perfectly and that's what it's going to be so you don't want to do that so you make sure you don't do that you train it on the galaxy's that are the training galaxies and then you go and look for well what are the what are the galaxies that are out there and what are their properties and that's where this huge advantage of machine learning comes in over the traditional bayesian fitting methods is you say wow when we look at okay we have this data and for the local group it's real data but for all of these simulations it's mock data that part isn't so important what's important is you get better results using the machine learning method you get smaller errors you get smaller departures from the um from the properties that it's actually going to have and you get these quantified uncertainties and errors um, that that allow you to know how how far off can i expect these things to be like how associated with each galaxy um how confident or how lack of confident am i in what the machine learning is telling me and what the bayesian fitting is telling me and and it seems like pretty much across the board there's nothing that the machine learning is worse at and many things that the machine learning is better at particularly in terms of speed of being able to do this it's literally like thousands of times faster
1: yeah, that's a, that's first of all, that was an excellent description of what overfitting is. It's basically cheating. We're comparing a galaxy to itself and saying, hey, that's a 100% match. Uh, we do not want to cheat. We do not want to be unfair to the Bayesian fitting code in that manner. We want to be objective. Uh, and that's why we do cross-validation. Um, and yeah, we were actually very happy with the results we got, um, especially in, in times of, uh, pardon me, Especially in terms of uh, run times and the compute required uh, These modern machi- these modern uh, Bayesian fitting codes It's almost unthinkable to run them on your regular laptop or your regular workstation uh, You know your, your home desktop uh, But that's exactly what I did um, Like you said they are significantly significantly faster, which is why uh, we've made it all completely public. It's on github so people can download, they can download our data sets. They, um, they can, you know, change my code as they say fit, um, and and just go play with it. Um, and, and just to um, delve into that just a little bit, uh, a big reason, if not the major reason, um, why Merkwood is so much faster than traditional Bayesian fitting is because it's stateful as opposed to stateless. And what I mean by that is... Uh, your traditional Bayesian fitting code what it does is it takes the galaxy of interest for which you do not know the characteristics the properties every time it it sees a new SED, every time it sees a new galaxy it goes back to the entire corpus and it compares whereas what we do is we, we condense all of this effort into just training time once our model has learned Um, this pattern between input fluxes and output galaxy properties based on the training set uh, and that's it we don't have to keep training every time we see a new test galaxy we can very quickly in a a matter of milliseconds find out the closest match because we've already learned um, the the various weights and the various biases in our model Uh, and this comparison is just lightning fast Uh, So that's what I meant by stateful and stateless. Uh, Bayesian fitting completely forgets that, hey, it had already made this comparison, whereas machine learning remembers that. Um, And that gives us this huge boost in speeds.
0: That that also seems to lead to a pretty interesting corollary, which is that as we collect more and more and more and more data, right? As we get more spectral energy distributions for more galaxies, uh, either from simulations or from actual data, um, what's going to happen is machine learning is going to get faster and Bayesian fitting is going to get slower for the exact same reason that for machine learning, you have more templates, more for the machine to know, and basically, as soon as it sees something, it can go to a more advanced step down the line, where it already has categorized it as it's in this family, it's in this subfamily, it has these probabilities assigned to it, etc. Whereas for Bayesian fitting, you basically the more galaxies you look at, the more galaxies you have to compare your new observations to, so it's slower
1: yeah that's perfect that's a perfect description of um of the differences and uh, it's also important to mention that because uh that is a big reason why i believe machine learning is the way uh moving forward um Bayesian fitting is, is beautiful uh it gives you a good error bars uh, it's it's rooted in um very robust mathematics and statistics uh but it doesn't scale. And that's a big, big drawback. Um, we started this uh, podcast by mentioning how um, this decade, if not the century really, is the century and decade of, of big data. We expect our uh, corpus of, of data to increase by a factor of several orders of, and orders of magnitude. Um, there, there is a lot of work being done in literature uh, and in industry to speed up Bayesian fitting codes, but the, in sheer terms of run times and, and just uh, quality of results, uh, machine learning models and deep learning models specifically, uh, they really rule the day. Um, and yeah, yeah, like, like you said, um, this is going to be more and more of an issue going forward, um, which is why uh, this also kind of uh, segues into why it's important in astronomy, to have your code open source Um, because if we as a community decide that this is what we're going to do this is we're going to uh, invest our time and resources into into developing a more sophisticated and um, specialized machine learning and deep learning algorithms it's important that everyone has an equitable access to them Um, just because uh, you know sometimes it can get expensive to train these large models and not every person or not even every university or every uh, institution has the compute resources to do that, which is why once they're trained, it's important to release these models out into the world so everyone can use them. Um, and another reason is if we make, if for instance, I've put Merkwood on GitHub, if I made a um, coding error, if I, if there's a bug in my code or if I realize, hey, I know this is a problem, but it's just beyond my capacity. Uh, or beyond my coding abilities in Python to solve it, it's important to reach out to everyone and just seek help.
0: Oh man, I, I remember this personally when I was in grad school, I was so thankful for uh, codes like Ed Birchinger's Cosmos uh, simulation. this So this is gonna date me as to how old I am. But yeah, I remember that simulation and I remember being so happy that I could download it and I can run it and I could compile it myself. And if there were additional things I wanted to program into it, I could, cause it was there. And it was the same thing early on with the first uh, CMB simulations after WMAP came out, after the WMAP data came out is you you could download it and you could apply these masks to it and you could do the spherical harmonic decomposition of it and you could you could dive into the data yourself you could you know manipulate it in a certain way and look for skewness and kurtosis and all of these you know intricate details and it's really you know I'm just geeking out about it because that's my specialty but in any specialty I think having access not only to the data but the tools that allow you to manipulate the data and the ability to manipulate those tools yourself. um, For one thing, they allow you to explore just how robust these results are for yourself. Can you reproduce it? Can you see how superior this data is and the analysis techniques are to the prior ones that exist? And, And the answer is yes, if you do it properly, you sure can. But then you could go to the next level too and talk about it. Hey, if I want to optimize over this thing or treat this parameter in a different way or look for this thing that maybe the original code didn't look for, you can do that as well if you have that sort of access. And I think that this simulation in general, um, when, when I was coming up, it was either, okay, you were either a theorist or an observer or an instrument builder When it came to the types of astronomers there were, I would say that the idea that you would just do computational or data analysis or simulated. Um, sort of astronomy, like sometimes they would try to shoehorn it under one of those umbrellas as theory or observation. Um, And sometimes they would say like, yeah, well, maybe like computational is sort of its own thing now. Um, I think that Computational astronomy, it's an incredibly useful tool, but it's very easy these days to specialize in that. And yeah, you'll know some theory or some observation, but your specialty can be in computational astronomy. And that is just as legitimate and robust a field of astronomy as any of the others these days.
1: That is an excellent observation. Um, unfortunately, I've met some uh, old timers who. Uh, you know, who do not actually share that same view with um, as much uh, conviction as uh, I would like to believe uh, that specializing just in computational astronomy uh, it takes as much effort as it as it um, takes to specialize in, say, observational astronomy or theoretical obs- um, astronomy. Uh, but with time, these, these sometimes views take time to change, and with time... Uh, as uh, current grad students become postdocs and postdocs become faculty and younger faculty become tenured faculty, um, with time uh, views will change. In fact, they, they need to change because that's really where we are moving as a society and especially as an astronomy community uh, towards uh, larger and larger use of computational resources uh, in our work. Um, and uh, yeah, wow, man, I, I, did, I didn't realize you were that old.
0: You know, it's funny though because when we start, uh, when we start thinking about these things, you know, I would say the older astronomers that you talk about that are resistant to computational astronomy being its own legitimate field. In my experience, um, first off, they're not the astronomers that are in subfields where machine learning and large data sets and data analysis is already having an impact. I think in those fields where where the impact has already been felt, um, I think that that acceptance rate is a lot higher. Um, And also I'll say that the age at which you really start to encounter that attitude, uh, I don't really see it among anyone in their 20s, 30s, 40s, or even their early 50s. You really have to get to the astronomers that are maybe 55 and older before you start getting them to delegitimize uh, computational astronomy as being a legitimate field, um, because you really have to go back about 30 years, 35 years maybe, to a time where computational astronomy wasn't an important part of at least some astronomical fields at the time. And I think that, like you say, uh, this is changing Um, that people are sort of recognizing how essential to astronomy Um, the interplay of simulations and large-scale analysis and machine learning and computational techniques really are. uh, Like you maybe allude to, it's sort of that famous paraphrase of the Max Planck quote that, yeah, you know, physics advances one funeral at a time. Um, And I think in astronomy, that attitude of, oh, this new stuff you do is just a fad and it won't last. I, I think that's pretty clearly not the case. It's really someone saying like, oh, you know, I've been chopping down trees with my axe for a long time. You get your newfangled chainsaws out of here. They, they're just a fad. They won't last. Um, you know, I think computational astronomy and I think the techniques involved in machine learning in particular, uh, I, I think they're here to stay. And I think everyone who works in those subfields sort of recognizes that.
1: Certainly, um, you you made excellent points. Again, uh, it's important to make that distinction um, between fields. Uh, Some fields, uh, just by their, uh, and when I say fields, I mean some subfields of astronomy, by their very nature, uh, have been quick to embrace uh, machine learning and and deep learning and these new technologies, whereas uh, more theoretical fields, um, not so much. However, uh, times are changing. Universities are investing hundreds of thousands and tens of millions of dollars into creating uh, specialized centers for data science. Um, There has been, this is something I've noticed, there has been a significant rise in uh, young graduate students like myself and postdocs who specialize um, in both astronomy and machine learning. It's this really beautiful field at the intersection called astro statistics. And there are specialized um, workshops and conferences and schools. Uh, so I think within the next five to 10 years, that might be a little bold of a prediction, but I would say really in the next five years, I don't think there is going to be any university in the country where, or any astronomy department in the country, uh, which doesn't have at least one person specializing in, um, It could be a graduate student, it could be a postdoc, it could be even a young faculty member that they recently hired specializing in in machine learning and using their skills to help um, their colleagues and uh, just other people in the department improve their own modeling.
0: You know, I think think that's really important. That's a really important point because we're always, no matter how much it is, we're always going to have a finite amount of data, a finite amount of information we've collected about the universe. And what you're talking about as sort of computational astronomy is really about extracting the greatest amount of useful scientific information out of that data. Um, As the data gets larger and larger, as the data sets become larger and larger, um, machine learning techniques need to become incorporated into that because the traditional techniques, they do. They they become more computationally expensive and they can't get you the low errors um, and the incorporated uncertainties, at least today, that machine learning can get you. So I think that if people remain interested in maximizing the amount of information we can learn from the data we have, that this is basically going to be an essential component. I think it would be remiss of me to not encourage young people listening to this podcast or older people who may be thinking of going back to school to become an astronomer. uh, If you're headed to astronomy graduate school, if you're going to be entering the field of astronomy, Um, You know, I used to struggle to tell people the importance of learning programming in any way. Like just, hey, this is important. This is something that will be a part of your education no matter what field you go into. Knowing how to program at least in a language and how to read code and how to understand what a code is doing is important. I think that wave now extends to machine learning as well, that even if you yourself aren't going to go into it, you need to at least be aware of how it works and what it can do for you and your data.
1: Oh man, you're really uh, speaking to my soul here. Uh, It's it's been a a personal gripe of mine um, that astronomers, we don't realize, like I, I don't think many of us actually sit down and ponder how integral how integral coding is. Simply the ability to write good, fast, functional, readable code, how completely integral that is to our work. Uh, a large number of times, uh, you know, when I go out in public and I just talk to folks and say, hey, I'm an astronomy graduate student, uh, so many of them ask me, like so many, Uh, So how many times have you, you know, looked at the nice guy through a telescope? Is that how you collect your data? And I've had to inform them and educate them that you're talking about 50 years in the past. Now we have these massive, massive telescopes who collect our data for us and they just throw it to our computer. And we spent majority of our day just writing code to extract value from the data that's on our computer. Uh, So... um, I think your advice to younger students uh, is, is beautiful. Uh, it's very important. And I would also encourage them, maybe their departments do not offer courses, uh, specifically programming courses. Uh, there is There are so many resources out there just on the internet. Uh, I would encourage them to look for them and actually learn how to become a better programmer. And I think that by itself uh, is going to really speed up uh, their uh, progress in, in uh, graduate school. Uh, I've seen um, including my my old uh, my own code when I was a younger graduate student. Uh, it was so inefficient it would run so slowly and I would have to wait hours, if not days to uh, to get results. And then I actually invested time into learning how to code properly, how to optima, how to use um, different code optimization tools. Uh, how to figure out where exactly in my pipeline is the code taking the the most time to run Uh, all these steps and my and my game really improved Uh, and then you add machine learning and deep learning knowledge to it and it really takes your um, graduate school journey to the next level so i would uh, absolutely agree with you and your advice to people especially uh, students looking to get into graduate school in astronomy uh spend time learning how to code spend time learning uh machine learning tools there are various various resources out there you have coursera courses you have um, udemy courses you have youtube lectures you have so many codes that are publicly available on github just to educate yourself uh, and that's because that's the future you know, it's, it would be foolish not to do that.
0: Yeah, and something else that I would encourage people to do, if you are an astronomy grad student and you are trying to teach yourself some of these things and you find some code that you're working with and you have questions about it, um, don't be afraid to email or, you know, otherwise contact the author of the code if you're looking at the code, trying to understand the code, trying to reproduce the code yourself or write your own version of it, and you have questions, this is, astronomers generally like talking about their work to other astronomers. So, um, you know, even if you feel isolated where you are, you don't have someone who's working on the computational program or problem you'd like to work on, you um, you can reach out to people and they they generally actually like it, which is not something I think younger people in the field generally appreciate. They're normally intimidated to write to older people and they'll be like, oh, that person doesn't want to talk to me. That person doesn't want to, um, that person doesn't want to waste their time on me. A lot of people they're going to be excited that someone is looking at their code. They're going to be excited that someone's interested in the same problems that they're interested in and as a result you can wind up actually learning a fair bit from the people who did that i love the idea like you said also of teaching yourself how to do it because that's that's hugely important i remember my advisor when i was uh learning to program at the you know at the grad school level at any rate uh he was like okay well i want to make sure that you know what you're doing with Uh, programming, so I don't care what language you use, use whatever you're most comfortable in, but uh, write me a program to computationally uh, compute to 0.1% accuracy the first 1000 zeros of this Bessel function. And you know, that's fine, It's it's a math problem, it's not a trivial math problem, but it's one of those things that in order to solve it you have to learn Quite a few, uh, programming techniques in order to get a code that will be accurate for a long period of time. In order to get you those values to that accuracy and those types of problems, um, you know, you could say, well, I want you to compute the fractional, the best fractional approximation to pi for the first billion digits of a numerator and denominator, um for for every step along the way what are the best fractional approximations of pi like these are just numerical problems these are just math problems that you can use to train yourself on programming in general um and you know of course things get a lot more complex with machine learning as well but it's really the same idea um You learn programming by programming. You learn physics by solving physics problems. You learn how to research by doing research. Um, It's sort of the same thing. You put the time, you put the effort into it, and the payoff will come twofold. One is you'll have grown your mind so that you're able to do this. But the other thing you're growing is you're growing your problem-solving toolkit. You're making yourself more capable of solving different types of problems, different incarnations of problems, different difficulties of problems that, you know, maybe you have a new technique for doing it. You have a new tool for doing it. That's that's incredibly useful because I, I think what you've built with Mirkwood is going to impact the field of said modeling tremendously and is also going to help contribute to our understanding of galaxies. Right now, it works for modern-day galaxies, but as we look farther and farther away, uh, it's pretty clear that you're going to be able to use this same technique to galaxies not as they are today, but as they were hundreds of millions, billions, or even 10 billion or more years ago.
1: First of all, before I say anything else, I think you had a really cool advisor. If he actually uh, focused on your on your um, programming skills, um, I I will talk
0: up my advisor to the end of time. <laughs> like I I think I lucked out that I got someone who cared about so many of the same things I cared about in physics in astronomy and in education in general Uh, i i had an excellent working relationship with him and i think when i graduated was when i really realized how spoiled i was because in all of my career afterwards i i never had a working relationship like i had with my advisor
1: oh absolutely it's uh yeah i've experienced that firsthand uh, I've seen that with other students. It's only after uh, you know, they've moved on um, to uh, higher stages in their careers, they look back and say, hey, that was a really good relationship or, hey, that was a really shitty relationship. And I think it was Jim Fry, your advisor, wasn't it?
0: Oh, it sure was. It sure was. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, I, I don't think uh, listeners know this. Uh, Ethan and I uh, are gators. Ethan is a, Ethan is a former gator. Uh, we, we go to the, uh, or I go to the same uh, university that he went to. That's yeah. the University of Florida. Yeah. Yeah. In um, fact, your
0: advisor, Desika uh, Narayanan, he was an undergrad at University of Florida when I was a grad student there. So yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Uh, I'm a couple of years older than Desika, but he's a professor at University of Florida in the astronomy That's department right. now. That's right. If you would like to uh, sort of talk about how... Um, What you've done with SED, with said modeling and machine learning is going to apply not only to the galaxies we have today at late times, but to the earlier galaxies, which is going to be tremendously important for observatories like Nancy Roman and observatories like james webb which are going to probe back very far into the early universe um, we want to be able to do this type of modeling of understanding galaxies and their spectral energy distributions we don't want them only today we're going to want them at all epochs throughout the universe aren't we
1: absolutely absolutely there is no fundamental reason why Merkwood or or a code like Merkwood uh cannot apply to galaxies at early times in fact it's uh, like, like you mentioned, there is a lot, a lot of science to be gained. If we are able to apply a really robust machine learning model that the community trusts, if we can apply it to extract properties for galaxies at early times, uh, specifically, you mentioned the, uh, the Nancy Grace uh, Roman Telescope, uh, the community is really uh, waiting with a bated breath uh, for it to be launched because it's really going to take our... Uh, uh, galaxy knowledge to the next level. Specifically, it's going to observe galaxies that were formed uh, at earlier times, and we want to know how these galaxies evolved as a function of time to to the universe, to represent the universe that exists right now. We want to know all those intermediate steps uh, by observing galaxies that we observed or that we use in our paper, which are late-time galaxies, uh, we only get one slice of the, of the pie, but we want the entire pie. And to do that, you want to observe galaxies at, at as many epochs and as many redshifts as you possibly can.
0: Yeah, and this is this is also nice from a simulation viewpoint because for something like Illustrious TNG, you can just, you know, take that simulation and cut it off at an earlier time or a higher redshift and say, okay, now I'm going to uh, you know, do my halo model or whatever it is here, and I'm going to find where are the galaxies now and what are their properties. And you can train your machine learning on galaxies at really any arbitrary redshift or any arbitrary time that you want. Um, and Then you can do the same thing that you did here today at 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang at Z equals zero. You can do that for any higher redshift in any earlier
1: time. Yeah, you've nailed it again. That's exactly what you can do. Um, One need not even cut off simulation um, during its uh, evolution. What you can really do, is, is train, or pardon me, is generate this massive corpus of Galaxy SEDs at a number of redshift slices and just keep adding to this master corpus. Um, your machine learning model, it can train in an online fashion, which means let's say um, five years from now, um, a new state-of-the-art simulation that, that is say better than Illustris TNG comes online what you can simply do is add its simulation to your master corpus and your machine learning model does not have to train from scratch it can just it can use the original data that it has or the original patterns that it has it has recognized by training on the original data set and it can just enhance that pattern or those patterns by training on these new data sets and then you have this really beautiful pattern matching ability to that will take you from your input flux space to output galaxy space. And then you can throw any, any observed galaxy at it. And it should ideally give you uh, its properties. But like we said earlier in this podcast, we are a little ways from that point. Uh, but the community, the, the galaxy evolution of community is already making strides towards it. Uh, in fact, like I alluded to just a little while ago, We are working on Merkwood's uh, version two, uh, where we, instead of predicting properties of synthetic galaxies, we're actually going to uh, derive properties of real galaxies and see how well that matches with our knowledge of the known universe. And I believe that is the next step.
0: Well, that's, that's very exciting. So what we can do is you know look forward to a time where we can basically look at any galaxy in the universe at any time, where we observe it in whatever wavelength band we observe it in, um, and then we can say, okay, I'm gonna apply this robust machine learning suite that's already been trained and already learned based on all of this other stuff that's out there, and I can know, to whatever degree of confidence my observations admit, um, I could know, hey, uh, how do I classify this galaxy? What are its properties likely to be? What's what's this probability distribution of what it's actually like? Um, which is wonderful because it gives you a snapshot of how any galaxy in the universe that you can make these observations of, like, hey, I can know a whole lot more about this galaxy than just the part I observed because the machine learning is going to tell me. I wanna ask you, um, what are some of the things that we can look forward to that telling us about the universe as we as we sort of say, okay, based on I'm gonna do the machine learning stuff, I'm gonna take the observations that I can take, um, what is this going to allow me to do? Will it, for example, allow me to understand when Uh, new stellar populations form in galaxies? Will it allow me to see how the initial mass function of new stars evolves over time or based on certain properties? Will it allow me to uh, more tightly constrain the Hubble constant based on observations? What, What are some of the science goals that maybe I didn't even have, but that this type of technology and technique can enable?
1: That's a very fair question. You've already um, noted some really, really good goals. Um, I'm, I'm going to be specific because, like you said, there are just so many things that we can do. Um, deriving Galaxy properties from their SEDs is, is absolutely the first step. Once you have robust, believable properties, you can just, you know, the, you can go paint the town red. Uh, specifically, uh, with respect to our, our Merkwood version 2 paper, uh, what we're aiming to do is uh, we're again observing nearby galaxies, but this time we are trying to correlate the properties, the galaxy properties that we derive to galaxy morphologies. And we're trying to see if certain types of uh, certain shapes of galaxies uh, tend to uh, cluster in certain in, in a certain area of the parameter space. And, and if so, uh, what does that tell us about the, the differentiated evolution of different uh, of galaxies with different morphologies that that's a very specific question that we're trying to answer um, like you said there there's just way too much to mention with respect to what else uh, we can do with these properties uh, if I had to pick a big one I would say if one is able to derive the entire star formation history uh, just a recap for the listeners, I mentioned that one of the four galaxy properties that we derived in our Merkurid paper was the instantaneous star formation rate, which means the star formation rate in a galaxy at the moment we observe it. Star formation history is just star formation rate as a function of time. So how did how did star formation evolve in that galaxy uh, since that galaxy was born itself? Uh, that by itself uh, will tell us a number of things. Uh, say about quenching mechanisms in galaxies. Deriving robust star formation histories can tell us about different quenching mechanisms and different uh, star burst mechanisms. Uh, If we see that in certain types of galaxies, uh, star formation um, curves, star formation history curves, follow a certain shape, uh, we can start asking, hey, why does star formation burst occur at a certain point in these galaxies histories or we can try to uh, differentiate between different types of quenching mechanisms which is an open question in the field and and we can uh, put more confidence in our results and this is a direct uh, result of the fact that the properties the galaxy properties that we derive using machine learning algorithms are significantly more confident about their predictions than properties derived from um, traditional Bayesian fitting codes, which means the star formation history uh, plots the curve, star formation history curves, um, and the quenching mechanisms that we assert as a result of studying these curves, we can be so much more confident about them. And, and that by itself is a big deal.
0: So you're basically saying that what we could do with enough data and a, um, I guess a smart enough Machine learning thing that that's been trained enough so it's smart enough. Um, we could basically do something like look at anything we want, like from the Pillars of Creation to the Cigar Galaxy to um, you know one of those weird interacting pairs of Arp galaxies, and you could say, oh, um, well, based on what we know about the universe, we know enough information that we can tell you. Um, how stars are forming in it now, how long this episode of star formation is going to last, what's going to quench or stop the star formation from occurring? And when and how will um, sort of this signature of ionized hydrogen, will the signature of these dark nebulae, will the new material that can form and grow stars, when will that all be gone? When will this process be complete? That we could potentially, if we can get our machine learning to know enough about the universe, we could potentially just make a measurement of a new object and know the answer to all of those questions and more.
1: That's the dream, Ethan. That's that's absolutely the dream. Um we're not there yet, but we are working very, very hard to get to that point. And boy oh boy, when we get there, um uh, just science is going to explode. Um our our knowledge about how our galaxies came into being, and since most of the mass in, in galaxies is really or in the universe is really dark energy and dark matter, um we we will be able to make very bold more accurate predictions about the nature of dark matter itself.
0: You know, I I love that goal too. I I also love that you have both the enthusiasm for the long-term big goals that your research is helping the ast- the field of astronomy reach but you also love sort of this day-to-day here's what I do in the trenches here's what I do when I go to work I work on this problem I I do that like you you love both of those steps I think a lot of people in you know, not just astronomy, but I think in any scientific field, uh, they struggle to find something where both that big picture, that enormous landscape of a forest of their field, and also those individual trees about where they are right now on any particular day, that you you very clearly have a passion for both of them. Would you... Uh, would you have any advice for someone on trying to find that for themselves?
1: Absolutely. Um, it's funny that you use that analogy of forest and trees because uh, I like giving unsolicited advice to people all the time when I say that exact thing. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Uh, it's extremely important to have um, an end goal uh, big picture what am I working so hard for what do I what am I working towards um, we can often just you know uh, spend six hours nine hours 12 hours sitting in front of a computer uh, every day and forget that all of this is for something um, as far as advice to um, younger people, Uh, to uh, younger students who who are just starting their graduate school journey. I would say, first of all, uh, be very honest with yourself about your chosen field of study, uh, whether you kind of like it or you're really, really passionate about it. Ideally, you will be able to find a field and an advisor uh, who is passionate enough about uh, the fields to guide you, and eventually, your your interest will develop into a passion. Um, another thing that I would advise is do not be afraid of failing. Uh, I switched in my graduate uh, career, I switched fields twice. I moved from exoplanetary research to theoretical cosmology to now galaxy formation and evolution. Uh, don't be afraid to take big steps if you realize that what you are doing was not something that you really thought it was, or your interest wanes and you find some other fields really that much more attractive, you just will have to work that much harder. But, oh boy, it'll be so fulfilling when you just, you wake up every day and you can't wait to get to work. Um, I, I would say, uh, you know, being honest with yourself and just not being afraid to fail and take risks. Um, those are big steps.
0: You know, I think that's that's very good advice, and I'm I'm pleased to hear you give that to other people. I think that um, we have this pressure on ourselves, and, and I, I see it even more in young people uh, than I did when I was a young person. We have all this pressure to know what you want to do and make the right decision and not waste time and make no mistakes and get to the top of whatever it is you set your ambitions, ambitious sights on uh, as quickly as possible. And... I don't know anyone that that's exactly how that's worked. I don't know anyone that it's worked like that for, that you will have all of these moments of crisis in your life where you discover that the path you're going down, you're being frustrated by it, or you're not getting where you want to on the timescale you want to, or um, you lose passion for a specific project that you're working on. And, you know, I, I think whenever that happens, it's okay. It's maybe even better if you pause and you say where am I and what am I going to do next and what am I going to do about this puzzle that I'm facing I think the big thing is to make sure you reckon with it and then once you've reckoned with it and you have a like here's what I want to do as a course of action for it Um, you know to to don't be afraid to change directions some people that I know even in astronomy and astrophysics made their best career moves and most successful uh, discoveries or advances after having one of those crises. Um, So I'm really pleased to hear you sort of, you know, not only echo that in your own words, but to also give some unique advice for finding your passion, finding someone who helps you uh, pursue it, and also for just going ahead and going for it, even if the outcome is uncertain. Sankalp, I want to really thank you for a wonderful and wide ranging discussion. Uh, Almost doctor, astronomer, Sankalp Gilda.
1: So uh, close, so close.
0: uh, Do you have any final advice for uh, our listeners before we wrap this up?
1: Well, let me begin by uh, thanking you for inviting uh, me to speak with you and with your audience. This is the first podcast that I've ever done, hopefully not the last. It was a treat to talk to you about so many things, about my research, about uh, graduate school, um, about my paper. Um, As far as final parting thoughts, um, I would say find your passion. uh, Once you've found it, work hard and work smart. Um, And I think... Those things will really help you reach a goals in life.
0: Well, that's wonderful advice, and thank you for sharing it with everyone. I'd like to thank all of you out there for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. I'm so pleased to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above to help make this possible. Thanks go out to... Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Thomas Moore, Matt Conroe, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Jakutas, Chris Shaw, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyen, Pavel Zuzelski, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Bernegger, Ahmed Lee Comsi, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Hellbender, Jens Kroger, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez-Garcia, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojchuk, Randall Slimak, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parik, andres chovanek Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zapeta, Benhead, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Carl Iddings, Chris Hilly, Christoph Hip, Chuck Dannon, Dan Steelen Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabrielle Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hannah Kahn, Inga Strumke, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Jeff Reneke, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Blore Mark Langston, Mike, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Herzakian, Steve Schaber, Tina Tallin, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Blair, William Van de Hoovel, and Yanko S. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang.